1: Hi, this is John C. Riley, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
2: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: I just, I can't, I can't believe it, man. You, you did this. And of course, you play Mark. You want, you want me to play
1: Mark in in this big role? second lane. well yeah it's a, it's a huge role are you are you sure you, oh you don't want to do it fine I
0: have Johnny Depp available. no 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 I, I want
1: it I, I okay Adam let's say Johnny Depp
0: had agreed to star in the room is it better or worse I'm gonna say you change anything about the room and it's worse or better which makes it worse so I don't know That's James Franco in that scene with brother Dave Franco from The Disaster Artist, which tells the unusual story of the making of The Room, the wonderfully bad movie from 2003 that has become a cult phenomenon. Our review of The Disaster Artist and Guillermo
1: del Toro's The Shape of Water, plus the top five best worst movies. That and more. Oh, hi, Otto.
0: Ahead on Film Spotting. Last week on the show, we shared our top five movie years. We basically set aside our five favorite years in cinema history. These are the only movies that are going to be around for future generations, or at least us, to enjoy. And we follow that up with the best, worst movies? Yeah. And enough of the effusive praise about the high art of cinema. Let's talk about when it can be just real crap. Rob Hill, the author of The Bad Movie Bible, is going to join us later in the show to talk about his new book, The Bad Movie Bible, and share his top five best worst movies after the challenge and the chore it was last week to narrow down all those great cinema years to just five. It was kind of nice to relax a little bit and turn over the heavy lifting to Rob, and yet watching the scenes we had to watch... That was enough. That maybe was enough torture. A chore in itself. But also, we have to admit, as is usually the case with movies so bad they're good, also kind of brilliant fun. And we will talk about those movies in some more detail with Rob here in a little bit. Of course, this top five inspired by the disaster artist James Franco's new movie about the making of 2003's The Room. One of the very best worst movies so bad, in fact, it makes the cover of Rob's book. That review ahead as well. But first, there's no denying that director Guillermo del Toro is one of the most creative and imaginative
1: minds in the movie business. But his recent films, Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak, have proved more divisive. His latest, The Shape of Water, is a Cold War-era fairy tale featuring a romance between a mute woman and a non-human creature. It sounds right up del Toro's alley, but how about ours?
2: she deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you.
1: You clean that lab, you get out.
0: This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think
2: that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature
0: is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. Our preview shows here on Film Spotting take the form of questions instead of just listing intriguing titles. And the release of Guillermo del Toro's latest affords me the opportunity to finally answer my number one question about the year ahead way back in January. What movie will best capture our post Trump election sociopolitical climate? My candidates were Catherine Bigelow's then untitled Detroit Project, which became Detroit, reviewed on the show in August. And The Shape of Water, two films set in big American cities in the 1960s, but otherwise distinctly different from each other in tone, style, and subject matter. That a based-on-true-events movie depicting a race riot that culminates with a horrific abuse of power might resonate today isn't a particularly bold prediction. But the fairy tale about a lonely, mute-cleaning lady played by Sally Hawkins who works in a government lab and falls in love with an amphibious humanoid creature captured by Michael Shannon's ruthless agent in the rivers of South America? Well... I don't remember what I might have read in prep for that top five or what part of the movie's plot synopsis spoke to me about, quote, the times we live in, unquote. But I do recall what intrigued me the most, whether it was possible that the metaphorically political film, the one floating in the realm of fantasy and romance, would be as profound or even more so as the literally political film, the one rooted in the harsh injustices of real life. If any filmmaker could pull it off, It should be Del Toro, who offered us the luscious, imaginative, and occasionally terrifying children's tales set against the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War, The Devil's Backbone, and Pan's Labyrinth, and whose Pacific Rim depicted nations of the world uniting to build giant machines to take down alien sea creatures— following devastating attacks. Didn't Hellboy fight Nazis or something, too? I don't want to dwell too much on our issues with Detroit, Josh, or our issues with a certain American president, but I am curious how you'd approach my question from January. And what aspect of The Shape of Water did you find the most provocative? It is provocative. There must have been something that clued
1: you Mm -hmm. in early on because certainly the guess would have been Detroit, right? Yeah. And no, this is this is more blatantly political, I would say, The Shape of Water. I, I, obviously, there's metaphor at work here, but there's a lot right on the surface of this movie politically. And maybe we could talk about how that registered with us, whether it was too broad or too messagey. I've seen that be a complaint. I'd agree that it is very broad and very messagey for me in the manner of a fable. So Mm -hmm. I took that as the moral of the fable or the fairy tale and accepted that on-the-noseness a little bit more than I might in something like Detroit, maybe, Mm -hmm. or another straight dramatic film. Uh, What was most provocative to me, though, was not so much the political messaging as how far, and we'll tiptoe around spoilers here, Del Toro and his co-screenwriter, Vanessa Taylor, push this romantic element mm-hmm. i think this has been something that's always been an undercurrent for some of the better creature features from king kong to the obvious inspiration here creature from the black lagoon you could sense this romantic longing going on in the background of course 1976's king kong went all out with this with jessica lang you know basking in kong's breathiness they almost lampooned that subtext mm-hmm. right here in The Shape of Water, they go further than 76's King Kong. I'll just say that. But they also do it more earnestly. And so it's provocative. I have already heard from some filmgoers who have been a little troubled by how far that goes. For me, uh, I think it helps to – and we'll circle back to your original question here – to see that element of this story, the approaching of this creature with curiosity. Uh Uh-huh and kindness and eventually love being a metaphor for a political way of being. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what's at the heart of this film and it gets loudly pronounced in some of the subplots that we'll probably talk about. That's why it is so blatantly political. It gets loudly pronounced in the villains that we see and what they represent um, but it's most evocative for me and magical when we see it enacted by Sally Hawkins' character. When she sees something she doesn't quite understand, uh-huh. doesn't quite know, and is hugely different from her experience, what's the posture she takes? Curiosity. Uh, curiosity. It's a, Compassion. And compassion. And it's a beautiful posture to see. Mm-hmm. It's increasingly rare, at least in public life. And that's why this
0: stands out to me as one of the most timely and moving films of 2017. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, including maybe the most provocative aspect of it being how it depicts that romance, because one of the things that surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't, based on del Toro's willingness, based on the films I've seen, to be provocative and I suppose be a little bit edgy, but I like that the film actually went there in terms of there being a sexual component. I think we can say it, or at least a physical component that isn't just In this relationship, but from the very beginning of the movie is shown as something that's a part of everyday human life, which, of course, it is. There's an element of kink, I suppose, but that the movie acknowledges that physical component to romance and to just human existence is something that other fairy tales, other fables might have chosen to skip. Or, or hint at, you or know, only hinted at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think it's crucial, you know, that that early indication of this as part of Eliza's, the Sally Hawkins character, part of who she is. Mm-hmm. Right. She she's someone who's alive. I think that's a key way to describe her. Even though. Most of society doesn't see her that way, perhaps because of her class position and also because she is mute. Yet the movie very carefully in this opening sequence of establishing her daily routine is emphasizing her her spirit, her liveliness. And, of course, this is something that Hawkins embodies as an actress. Mm-hmm. I, I just am – every day I've paused and, and after seeing The Shape of Water and said, huh, they really cast Sally Hawkins in this. Yeah, You know, because – A hundred times out of a hundred, they would go with an ingenue or the rising young actress. You know, someone sought of as a sex symbol. And I don't think people look at Sally Hawkins that way. And that's all to this movie's credit, Mm -hmm. that it's not emphasizing sexuality in that manner. No. I think that's what you're talking about. It is. It's 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 just every day. Yes, it's every day. And again, her performance, it's wonderful that she was cast in this because in Happy Go Lucky, it, it was a little too much for me. You know, that was one of those, those overboard that's who the character was supposed to be on me not on hawkins but how is that movie people had kind of like an allergic reaction to yeah, the Lee a complete film. hug of that film mm-hmm. because of her performance and here she has that same uh bubbling sense of life she's not happy-go-lucky but it's crucial to having her register and have that life force come out,
0: even though she isn't using words. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about that political element a little bit because I think you articulated that well. It's there. It's certainly there in that this is a Cold War era set movie. There is some racial disharmony, I suppose, that the movie exposes, racial inequality that the movie depicts. We could see Michael Shannon's very cynical very driven government agent as a type of villain that we could probably read in all sorts of elements if we chose but at the end of the day for me I felt like the movie posed a question that maybe shouldn't be political but in this day and age is and it's a question I think a lot of del Toro's films pose which is really just what kind of person do you want to be in this world who, who do you see yourself as? What are you willing to stand for? What are you willing to stand up and say? Just speaking is something that even though her character can't she acts. That's how she backs up what she believes and her convictions. But being willing to just express yourself and sometimes characters trying to keep you from expressing yourself is something that recurs again and again in this film. And then that notion of action too, actually backing up what you say you believe in. And at its core, if you want to take away a message from this movie that probably needs to be shared and considered right now is that villain, Shannon, reflects, I think, the type of worldview that completely disregards the other, whatever that other may be, whether it's someone of a different color, honestly, a different gender, someone from a different ethnicity, or if they're a different type of creature completely, they are seen more as a threat. And the only one that he has any real admiration for or really any sense of respect for is another powerful white man. And I think Shannon stands with a line of del Toro villains who is absolutely a villain, a monster in many ways. And yet I think that at his core, he's, he's a pathetic figure and a tragic figure in some ways in that his real deficiency is that he has a complete absence of imagination. Unlike all the other characters in the film who have some type of romantic or artistic or creative outlet to express themselves. All he can do is express himself in the form of the things that conventionally define success in society.
1: Well, he has no imagination because he doesn't want anything to change. Right. right? He's, trying to, he's trying to make America great again while it's still ostensibly great yes. in this time period that the movie is showing. And OK, let's talk a little bit about a filmmaking detail because we might mm-hmm. be drifting off into a political allegory that just sounds broad and boring. But this Shannon character has a great touch, huge performance, big villainous performance. He's the big bad wolf of this fable. Absolutely. But I love the ghoulish del Toro touch of he gets two fingers bitten off Mm -hmm. early on by the creature. And they find them. Actually, Eliza finds them. And here's another character touch from her. She sees these fingers and kind of like is intrigued immediately and picks them up right away. She's kind of morbid and not afraid at all, right? And he gets them sewn back on. And for the rest of the film... They increasingly darken. Other characters refer to how bad they smell. And it's just a ho- a great horror touch that only a filmmaker like Del Toro would give to mm-hmm. add to that characterization in a very disturbingly sensual way. Yeah, uh, That's undermining the character as well. You know, this is a guy who's rotten to the core and we're watching him rot. Mm-hmm. And for all the fearsomeness that he has in these scenes, it's Michael Shannon after all. We still know that he's he is – a decaying mind.
0: Yeah, he is. And probably to its detriment a little bit, Josh, I would say that it is the kind of performance Michael Shannon can do in his sleep at this point. And I don't know that it ever really elevates beyond he's more that. he's invested than that, though. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, of course. He's invested in everything. I mean, you want to talk about commitment. He is one of those actors who is certainly always committed. But I don't know that there are any elements in particular that are going to make it stand out from – some other roles in his filmography in terms of just finding some nuance or something to bring to that character that doesn't make him that kind of villain we've seen many times before but there is something in the way he's characterized i think that does stand out a little bit from those conventional villains and i want to be clear again that at no point do i sympathize with him as a villain or as a monster he's someone who even when he does have a slip-up learns nothing from his own failings never becomes more human but I think del Toro at least is willing to acknowledge that he is a product of war himself. This is 1962. It's alluded to that he's got a military background, whether it was World War II or probably Korea. He did fight. He's probably seen some horrors of war that have shaped him in some way. Now, whether or not he was that person going in, we can only speculate. But he is a product of that, and he's the product of a system that, as I touched on, prizes detachment, that prizes destruction, and that does kind of ask you to subjugate your humanity a little bit in order to get by, in order to succeed. And he does have that line that I just thought was very revealing, anyway, of his character, where he's talking to that general, won't give any more away, but asks the question, if your whole life you've done everything right by the book, you've played by all the rules, and you fail once, are you a failure? And that is a provocative question coming from a character who... Otherwise, it would be very easy to sort of dismiss as just the bad guy. And I was texting today with a listener, Josh Youngerman. We've mentioned him a few times. This is one of his favorite movies of the year. And he was at a screening in New York, I think, where Del Toro was present. And not surprisingly, he said that he does see Michael Shannon. And the political nature of this film, it is allegorical to reflect kind of what's going on in the country today. But he says that in the time that the movie was made, if this movie had come out in the 1960s, Michael Shannon would have been the hero of the film.
1: Well, that speaks to the culture he's a product of, yes. right?
0: This yep. this false
1: Norman Rockwell. Here's another great touch in the film is that one of Eliza's good friends is her neighbor played by Richard Jenkins, a gay advertising artist. So there's a representative of another societal other there and but also a well-defined and performed mm-hmm. character. Anyways, he's working on this Piece of advertising for Jello, some sort of Jello cake, and his drawing is of a nuclear Norman Rockwell white family sitting around this Jello cake, and he's told to make it green because everything's green nowadays. And we see later on when Michael Shannon is home with his family, his fifties-type wife, mm-hmm. even though this is the sixties now, and two kids, I believe. What boy are they, and a girl. What are boy and a girl? What do they have? What are they eating? The same green Jello cake, yep. and so just to speak to your point of how they are fleshing out this character, mm-hmm. you know, he's a part. He's trying to live up to that false advertising image as well. Okay, can we get to like the nerdy stuff that I that I just geeked out on about this sure. movie? Though it's the creature I've got, himself. I've got a religious thing I want to bring up. With okay, as yeah, so there's a lot of that stuff there. But the amphibian man here yeah. is amazing. Yep, and the reason he's amazing is because I at least could barely detect a shred of CGI. I'm with you. I think when he flutters his eyelids, especially when we first see him, um, that that's, I'm assuming, got to be some sort of Might effect. Be. Maybe not. Um, either way, it works beautifully because it's, you know, drawn on the eyelids of fish and the way they function. So it seems at once alien – and familiar, based in nature at least. But otherwise, this is Doug Jones, regular del Toro collaborator, mm-hmm. the Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth, a ghost in Crimson Peak, as well as other performances. This is him wearing a rubber suit. And it's maybe one-ups – the original rubber suit from Creature from the Black Lagoon, only because we've progressed in technology and costume design and that sort of thing. But that suit is amazing. I love how we first see him because there's a, a visual homage to the the webbed claw that is a great detail in Creature from the Black Lagoon. We first see the amphibian man in his tank when he gets wheeled into that lab and there's a little glass. And it's a cylinder, a steel cylinder, but we see a glass window and we see his claw first, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Love that homage and it also – Emphasizes the physical elements yes. of this costume design. We hear those nails later yep. click on glass or tiles. We see the gills on the side of his throat flap open and closed. They're there. When other characters touch him and they take their hand away, there's a little slime. All of that tells you he's in the same space. Yes. And that has become such a rarity mm-hmm. for fantasy films, action-adventure films, uh, to get that sense.
0: And man, does it make a difference when you finally Huge get difference. to see it. Yeah. It's it imbues every scene with an authenticity and that physicality. As we touched on, it's such an important part of this movie. And these characters, especially as they are, for the most part, all isolated characters who – are longing for that type of connection it really is so crucial and it's it's a wonder i was aware of it too now it didn't take me out of the film but there was at least one time where i did just sort of stare at the creature marveling at how they pulled it off and made it seem so I suppose seamless in the space and so believable it really is a tribute to everyone who worked on this film including the overall production design of this movie the designer is Paul Osterberry it's incredible Dan Lawson is the DP who shot it and it is all bathed and I use that word deliberately in this kind of green Mm -hmm. deep sea glow that reflects that creature and where he comes from and reflects the type of environment that Sally Hawkins' character, Eliza, also seems to be most naturally at home. And there's some interesting stuff with color in the film, too, where we see red doled out only in certain moments, and then it makes that blood when we see it really stand out as striking. But also the fact that green is mentioned so often in the context of the jello and at one point the ad exec the boss tells him green isn't what's in anymore and i think that it's almost a nod or i read it as a nod from del toro saying that hey i'm making this kind of old school monster movie that's going to have that green Mm. glow this is fantasy i want you to understand that it's fantasy in every way and there is an element of this film where they live above an old theater that's showing these old types of fantasy movies that nobody's going to anymore and we have richard jenkins character painting these pictures with all that green as if he's still lost in kind of this world of of old school fantasy and sentimentality that is no longer really welcome here anymore but then isn't it curious josh how the character michael shannon who seems to be plays a guy named strickland who seems so at odds with everything that we've talked about The others that we see reflected in all these other characters, he has nothing in common with. But when he goes to pick out a car, he's sold on the teal Cadillac. teal, which which, he initially calls green. Right, right, and and he hates it. The salesman. But the salesman sells him on it. And I did just think maybe that was a nod from Del Toro to say as different – As they are, as much as I am trying to make them starkly in contrast to each other as human beings, there's something that sort of inherently connects them. They are all part of this world, and it's kind of about the choices you make that that define really how you stand in that world. But I wanted to know, Josh, if you had, by the end of it, the culmination of this film, and I don't think this is necessarily a flaw of the film. I'm just trying to express kind of the experience I had with it. Did you have an emotional reaction to it, that maybe you thought you would, did it deliver fully on those expectations, because I 100% found myself caught in its glow, literally, that production design, the cinematography, the fluidity, and yes, I use that word deliberately again as well, the fluidity of the camera and the editing, which always feels like it's moving very subtly through through water unabated but still has that type of motion with steady cams but not ostentatious shots there is just always that sense of movement that I love and those effects as we touched on but I was never fully enraptured for some reason Doug Jones creature is beautiful his curiosity that matches hers the way he stands his physicality his posture he is godlike in some ways that comes up again and we'll touch on that and then you've got sally hawkins who's beautiful too in her grace and determination and compassion and them being these lonely outsiders who do find each other but i have to admit that no moment between them made my heart sink like the one where richard jenkins touches a man on the hand in a restaurant and dares to say to him out loud I'd like to get to know you better. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was the moment that broke me in a film full of these grand romantic gestures. And all I can think is, it'd be easy to say that I was so kind of hypnotized by the production design and that camera work and the technical virtuosity of the film that it took me out of the romance. I'm not sure that that's really it. I wonder if it's something about it inherently being a fable that by the end of this fairy tale, there is naturally a lack of stakes for me on some level that didn't really hook me in. I don't know. Did you have a similar reaction or not? So
1: it didn't strike me as overwhelmingly romantic. I can see how it would. I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. I, it, I could see how some people would take it that way in, in a similar way, like, you know, Beauty and the Beast not every version of that strikes me as romantic uh, either my i did have my breath taken away by the final moments but not because of their romantic nature as much as the surprise of what happened and I suppose there's a romantic element to it, absolutely, mm-hmm. but just the the wonder of it, you know, and the possibility it opens up that is distinctly different from the way some of these other creature features mm-hmm. have ended. Now, I, I will say something else that I think relates to what you're getting at, and it has to do with Doug Jones' performance. I don't think there's anything lacking in – The creature characterization or the performance, I don't think we get enough of what would maybe have brought me to see this as a pure romance, too. Mm -hmm. So their moments together, Eliza's and the amphibian man's, are – Beautiful. And I think that even a moment where she fantasizes, so you mentioned they, she lives above a theater, and with Richard Jenkins' character, she watches a lot of old mm-hmm. Hollywood movies, uh, musicals primarily. So this has been a motif that's been woven into it. There's a fantasy sequence where she imagines herself and the amphibian man in an actual Hollywood musical at a, on a soundstage, and it goes to black and white. And This is kind of a make-or-break moment in the film, I think, where you're with it or you're not. And I was with it only because I had noticed already in Doug Jones – physicality and performance, he was very similar to some of those tap dancers we see where he's precise in Mm -hmm. his movements and intentional. But there's also this sense of life that in the case of the amphibian man is dangerous. Maybe it's dangerous in some of these, you know, Astaire Rogers pictures too, that can't be contained. So there's a vitality to it as well. There's a precision and a vitality. And that's why for me, when it shifted to that Mm -hmm. sequence, I was on board because, oh... He had already laid the literal footwork, right? He'd been doing this sort of stuff. And so I could see their connection there. I wish there was more of that sort of thing in the movie. I feel like it does move a little quickly from the mystery of the amphibian man to their pretty hardcore wooing of each other. Yeah, You know, like maybe a couple more scenes of them tentatively getting to know each other, Um would have helped me in that romantic element because all those scenes that they do have together, I think, really work. And there's, there's another wonderfully romantic gesture where she fills up her own mm-hmm. bathroom with water for reasons we won't give away. But I, I just thought that was something that worked absolutely within the context of the story. Does this move me romantically the way something like In the Mood for Love does? Mm-hmm. no. But I can see how
0: some people might have that experience with it. Yeah. And I do think that one of the strengths of the film is that even though that romantic element is undeniably there, I actually apply the term romantic to it more in the context of what the movie is saying about the power of imagination and just being capable of that imagination and fantasy and applying gestures, sort of grand gestures or even small ones that are like the tap dance movements where they're watching a TV show and they they move in sync with the music, just allowing for the time every day for those types of artistic expressions and those different flourishes. They're important in this world. And the bad guy, again, is a character who can't connect with that on any level or express those types of things. One thing that did occur to me in thinking a little bit more about Shannon's character, and it's interesting, I suppose, that I've been thinking about him the most, even as Hawkins is by far the star of this movie and is really wondrous. But I do like all of these supporting turns, not just from Doug Jones and from Shannon and Richard Jenkins, but Michael Stuhlbarg, very good here as well as a scientist. And of course, we get Octavia Spencer as her best friend, also incredibly good. But there's a conversation that she has, Spencer, with Shannon and Sally Hawkins is present where He gets on the subject of God and he says something like God is made in in our we're made in his image. And then he has to add, well, maybe more mine Mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. yours. And I think that is probably a reference. Yeah, to Spencer, a reference both to her race and to her gender, probably. But definitely race being the key one there. He's exalted more as a white male in his concept of the supreme being. And it hits me, Josh, that maybe more than anything, the challenge, the threat of the amphibian man here in this movie isn't that he's just the other, which is probably enough to make Shannon's character feel threatened, but it's that he's actually more godlike. That what if on an existential level, or at least on a subconscious level, maybe he's not fully able to process it, but he sees in that man, someone who is more majestic, actually capable of the same brute force that he prides so much. And he has that power that he clearly thinks a man should have, but he also seems to live with imagination and compassion. He he's the full capability, I suppose of what God's ultimate creature could be. And that's the real threat to someone like Strickland. It moves him down the pecking order. Well, and he has, without giving it away, a, a, a pretty good final
1: line that opens up that yes. possibility. He has another line that's very telling. It might be in that scene or perhaps a different one. The word he uses for the amphibian man is an affront. And I think that speaks to it, – it's it's related to this Norman Rockwell culture that he sees as the way things should be. Yes. Um, There's a larger scheme of the way things should be, and the amphibian man does not fit into that. You're right, with him at the top of the pyramid, with Shannon at the top of the pyramid. And when he doesn't see that, he calls him an affront. Now, so that's just bad theology because this is where the Bible stuff comes in. How does Eliza regard the amphibian man, I would say, is a miracle, mm-hmm. right? So it goes back to where we started out politically, yeah. theologically, or politically. What what posture are you going to take? Uh, is it going to be one of defensiveness and protect what's mine and claim that I know how everything should be? That I'm essentially so much like God that I no longer allow there to be mystery in the world. Hmm. And but that's I, not that's I not think, relevant, Josh. I think. Sorry. What the shape no. of water is suggesting? Nice try. Is that? We should all be looking for the mystery in the world and embracing the mystery of the world. Yes. And it makes that seem tantalizingly possible in its very – filmmaking think about how this movie opens with an underwater mm-hmm. shot that seems at first at very first like you know many other underwater shots we've seen vistas and instead it leads us into a hallway mm-hmm. and we're in an apartment hallway yep. and then we're in an apartment
0: yeah and it's the mingling of the, the everyday the the reality and fantasy are floating
1: yep. above the space where they should be so we get the sense of this isn't a destructive flood mm-hmm. there's something else going on here and Won't say what else we see there, but uh, it is,
0: again, this very first moment that's opening up possibilities. The Shape of Water is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. The Film Spotting poll is next, where we'll ask you to
1: choose among the most esteemed releases of 2017. Then we'll talk the worst movies of all time with Bad Movie Bible author Rob Hill, here to share his top five best worst movies. Stay with us.
0: Colors pour in her eyes With hips and a hard on
1: Let your life pass me by
0: So what do you do around here?
1: Read books, transcribe music, swim at the river, go out at night. Sounds fun. All right, later.
0: Just watch, this is how we'll say goodbye to us when the time comes. Later.
1: (laughs) Meanwhile, we'll have to put up with him for six long weeks.
0: This is Film Spotting, a clip there from next weekend's big release. A ton of buzz on this one. Last Jedi finally here. No. Call me by your name. Ah, um. Army Hammer, Timothy Chalamet, named Best Actor of the Year by the New York and L.A. Film Critics Groups, Call Me By Your Name, also named Best Picture by the L.A. Critics. That's the movie we plan to review on next week's show, along with, yes, Josh? The Last Jedi. We hope. Yes. We hope because we don't know when we're seeing it yet, but we are making room for it, hopefully, in our schedules and hope to discuss it on next week's show. We've had a little bit of correspondence with Ryan Johnson if it comes up that he can actually appear on the show for a little film spotting interview. He said he was game, but, you know, I'm guessing he's a little busy. Yeah. And, you know, these things are really out of his control. He has mm-hmm. so many handlers at this point. It's, it's if they'll let him. Come on the show I think. That's true Josh, but we appreciate his interest even if it doesn't happen and we are sure that it will happen at some other date here in Film Spotting's future. Ryan Johnson once quoted on a Film Spotting t-shirt no longer for sale, but we do have brand new shirts that everyone seems to like and December 10th through the 13th, 14 bucks if you get your orders in by the 11th, they will arrive for Christmas using their budget shipping. Slightly more expensive shipping options you can get your order in as late as the 17th. 14 bucks still more expensive than my book
1: which still makes me feel bad. Yeah. Can you can you get a sale so at least the t-shirts
0: cost less than my book? No. That would just No seem more appropriate you know what it's it's what the marketplace has determined josh (laughs) apparently (laughs) this is a capitalist society filmspotting.net slash shop filmspotting.net slash events is also where you can find all the free movie passes we typically post most weeks you will find a couple movies there whether they're run of engagement passes or they are advanced screening passes we did have some available recently for the disaster artists and The shape of water both movies talked about this week on the show and we just encourage you to regularly check in with that page filmspotting.net slash events if you are in the chicago area
1: what's new with you not much still going to the movie tonight oh sure we are what kind of movie are we going to see well we'll see danny don't plan too much it may not come out right all right let's toss
0: the ball around okay That's exactly what it sounds like anytime Josh and I try to play sports together.
1: Remember, we did this summer. Remember the Wisconsin River? We were playing yeah, paddle ball. Paddle in the ball. river. And we had a
0: pretty good run yeah, going. we looked much better than the guys in the room. <laughs> no, we did. Tommy Wiseau and Philip Haldeman there in 2003's The Room, the cult movie that inspired first the book, The Disaster Artist, about the making of The Room, and then James Franco's movie adaptation of the book, starring Franco as Room Star Wiseau. We're going to get to our thoughts on the Franco movie in a minute here. But first, a couple weeks back, in anticipation of our conversation, we wanted to get a sense for just how many many listeners really knew about this room phenomenon our question was how do you feel about Tommy Wiseau's The Room and we gave you options in the form of quotes from the movie first it excites me so much so you've seen it you like it you love it whatever you didn't get it did you that means you have seen it you're not really on board I'm fixing the apartment for Johnny's birthday but I'm really not into it so there's a little bit of interest you're kind of kind of hooked you want to see it but you haven't made time for it yet or finally Why, Johnny? Why, Johnny? Why? Why? You haven't seen it. You won't see it. Zero interest in this film. Josh, how did it come out? In last place.
1: You didn't get it, did you? So those who have seen it and don't like it, 9%. The minority. The minority. Next up, why, Johnny? Why, Johnny? Why? Why? Haven't seen it and will not see it. 19% voted that way. Second place, I'm fixing the apartment for Johnny's birthday, but I'm really not into it. 35% of the vote was received for that option winning. It excites me so much. So they've seen it and they like it. They're on board. Yeah. 37% of
0: the vote. Some fans, either they kind of want to see it or they have seen it and really enjoy it. Wade McCormick writes, The Room is a terrible film. We all know this, but I only find it enjoyable by watching highlights of the particularly bad slash funny bits. Watching the whole thing, though, is a bore. Anyway, how's your second life. Anyway. Joshua Gall said I recognize the
1: twisted love for it and part of me wants to love it but as hilariously bad as the line reading is and the sex scenes are I can't bring myself to enjoy it ironically also no human person plays football
0: like that I think we've established that Jacob Meltzer oh hi film spotting I've seen the film in the theater twice plastic spoon throwing and soft toss football included and I absolutely love the experience both times however I cannot imagine just watching it alone at home like I watch a lot of films even though it's a far inferior film the room is Rocky Horror for Millennials in terms of the midnight communal theater-going experience. Also, it's hilarious that 80% of the time when I bring the movie up, people think I'm talking about Room, the Brie Larson movie. This just happened to me this past weekend. This is all preamble to say that I'm looking forward to The Disaster Artist more than any other film coming out this year, including Star Wars. Wow. Alex in Madison, Wisconsin says, The difference between The Room and kitschy
1: bad movies like Sharknado is the sheer earnestness of Wizo's intent. The blindness of the film's construction gives it a signature sublimity and surreality that is unshakable. If nothing else, it deserves its place in cinema history for its tonal originality. <laughs> okay. I'm with you there, Alex.
0: Christian Christensen in Porsgrun, Norway. In a world full of apathy, one man wanted to make a grand film. Tommy Wiseau had a vision and followed through to completion. The room may not be what he intended, but he has brought a lot of joy to people. There is value in that. It may not be good in the traditional sense, but bad movies like this frequently surprise me with unexpected moments. After seeing this, I had a long philosophical discussion with a friend about the sentence, you couldn't kill me if you tried. That is the kind of conversation the room inspires. Indeed, Jesse Kuda
1: says, I found this movie teetering on the so bad it's good line, but can't deny the appeal of some of the best scenes, including Denny's unplanned intervention on the rooftop. I hate to admit that the audience engagement
0: led me to missing most of the more quotable lines, which means... I'll probably have to see this film again. Finally, Max O'Connell right here in Chicago writes, I'm a little surprised that the seen it, like it category quote isn't, he's my best friend. (laughs) Max adds in parentheses, I've seen it upwards of 30 times. It's a sickness. Uh, Yes, that is a proper diagnosis, Max. (laughs) Wow. Okay. thank you, everyone who voted in that poll. That brings us to our new poll question. Looking ahead a couple of weeks to our big top 10 of 2017 roundtable, a set of shows where we do share our top 10 films of the year. Josh, you're ready, right? You could stop right now. We could tape it. Yep. yep. Nothing else to watch. Nope. Everything. All good. Not 25 movies or 30 on a list. Yeah, let's try That 40. you're trying to cram let's try in 40. <laughs> over two weeks. Michael Phillips will be part of that show, and the great Tasha Robinson from The Next Picture Show and The Verge. Now, we'll I don't know if Tasha has done this show
1: before my time, but she No, it's her first time her as part of the roundtable. Did you inform her it's a
0: 18-hour recording? I didn't tell her that but actually we bring we, snacks. Yeah, we sleep in the studio. Sleeping bags, <laughs> sleeping little bags. little lanterns, we make s'mores. Yes. <laughs> and we use old scripts from other NPR shows as kindling. S'mores are against WBEZ policy, so we got to be yeah. kind of, kind of well, down low yeah. about it. You're that. right. You're right. It's a good time, but Tasha definitely better bring a toothbrush. The best film of 2017 is That's what we're asking. And we know that like us, you're also probably trying to cram in some big movies here at the end of the year. So maybe this is more of a snapshot of where we stand right now, the first week of December, but that's fine. It gives us some fodder as we do approach these top 10 lists. We want to know what the best film of 2017 is according to you and we've narrowed it down to three movies that, you know, we're not saying they're definitively the three best movies, but I think a lot of people would point to them as defining movies of the year, all critically acclaimed. All, As far as I know, successful in relative terms at the box office, only one of them being a smash hit as far as I know. But all highly successful movies, all three movies that we reviewed favorably here on the show, those options are Dunkirk, Get Out,
1: Lady Bird. And we will give the option of Other, but really the way I'm looking at it is if there is going to be a movie we haven't seen yet that enters the top 10 conversation – it's going to have to nudge. That's probably it. these three, yep. or for
0: sure two of the three out of the way. So we aren't going to tell you how we're voting at this point, but please tell us what you think. Your favorite film of the year, Filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from.
2: You're not great. You and me, we are all the same. Oh yeah, how's how's that? We both have this dream that hey, we'll be famous. Yeah, I guess we do. <laughs>
1: You have a malevolent presence. You are a perfect villain. I could see you as Dracula, Frankenstein. I'm not Frankenstein. I'm Hero. James Franco there doing a really good Tommy Wiseau in The Disaster Artist. Franco's movie, he's also the director, is based on Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell's book about the making of the 2003 cult film, The Room. Sestero was one of the leads in The Room. He plays Mark, the Wiseau character's friend and nemesis. Actually, I I should probably say best friend. They're they're best friends. Oh, yeah. In The Disaster Artist, Sestero is played by Dave Franco. The movie also features Seth Rogen and appearances from many familiar Hollywood faces. On The Next Picture Show, part of the film spotting family of podcasts, they are pairing the disaster artist with Tim Burton's Ed Wood, a very good movie about a very bad movie. In Burton's case, Wood's 1959 effort Plan 9 from Outer Space. So has Franco done something similarly, Adam, working with somewhat similar material, certainly esteemed bad movie material here? Has he come away with something
0: that – maybe I'll tip my hat here we need? I certainly thought going in that I would feel that way. Me too. I thought this was a home run. Yeah. I thought I was going to love this film and I was really disappointed by it. And I've been thinking a lot about this movie for the past two to three days, trying to really put my finger on and articulate what didn't fundamentally work about the disaster artist for me. And I'll offer up something here, even though I don't know that I've completely hit on it yet. I wanted to say, or my initial gut instinct, reaction to this film was that something is missing in terms of that thing that is probably going to come up in our conversation with rob hill you talked about it a little bit and your thoughts on the room when you finally saw it last week in terms of the commitment to it the conviction something seems to be lacking and yet when i really think about it i'm just not sure that's true i think there's something missing dramatically in terms of how this movie is constructed. But I think James Franco is completely committed to the character of Tommy Wiseau. I think everyone is doing their best here to show an actual reverence for the movie. Maybe they show too much reverence, and that might be the problem. But I think their hearts are fully in this, and their hearts are in the right place. It's not a case where anybody involved in this movie is winking at us, or I think trying to take easy shots That's not the goal, anyway, to take easy shots at Tommy Wiseau and the people who made this movie. Maybe the best way I can express it is to steal from someone I saw on Twitter, Scott Nye. He's at Rail of Tomorrow. He's a co-host on the Criterion cast. He tweeted this. Francois Truffaut wrote, I demand that a film express either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. The disaster artist a movie about making a movie does neither. I think he's on to something there, because when the film... Does really get at that at the core of what Scott and Truffaut are expressing? At one point, it has to just blatantly spell it out. It has to put the words in a character's mouth, and that actress is Jackie Weaver, who's really good here as the what is she the mother to one of the characters? Right? It's been yes. a while since I've seen yeah. it. Who famously says the results are definitely and I have breast cancer, but she says something along the lines of the best day on a film set yeah. is better than the worst day off it. I wish that the film had found a way to really make me believe that instead of having to put those words in that character's mouth. And then Josh, the only other time I really felt it come through in terms of the joy of filmmaking being expressed is the first scene they shoot in the movie. It's with Zac Efron, who's almost unrecognizable. It's the mugging scene. And this is the first time that Franco as Wiseau is saying action and Dave Franco as Greg is there watching. And, They legitimately have no idea what's about to happen because they've never done this before, and they don't know if this is going to work or not, if this is going to actually feel like what they think a movie should be, and it works, or it works enough. It seems like it's real movie acting that they've done it, and their response to it is joyous and it, it filled me with that same amount of joy. Their their shock at the revelation of this unfolding the way maybe they didn't even dream that it could. But I do think when when Truffaut was talking about joy there, he's not talking about it actually physically making you feel happy. It's more of an existential question. And I asked, do we see the joyful process of movie making in this movie other than one or two isolated moments like that one? Or do we see the true agony of the process? I don't think we do, Josh, beyond at some point, the movie feeling like it turns into a catalog of mishaps and embarrassments. And that's just not enough to carry it.
1: Yeah. And even in doing that, in cataloging some of those mishaps, just in recreating some of these scenes, you're automatically going to seem as if you're piling on. And mm-hmm. I'd agree with you. That's not the intent of this film. But it's certainly there just by doing that, by recreating the room in any degree, but also Rogan's supporting character has sort of a snarky running commentary right. that is – we don't need – It really adds nothing. It, it, it's emphasizing how terrible this movie is. So, mm-hmm. so I think though I agree it wasn't the film's intent, there is a sense of piling on here. Part of the problem is you mentioned where the hearts are. I don't think this movie knows where it, its heart is on this, uh, which is is strange because it also – Feels like a passion project in some way mm-hmm. on Franco's part, where he does have some genuine affection for the film. And there's a gap. Conviction. You said conviction. That is absolutely it. Tommy Wiseau has more conviction in the room as a filmmaker than Franco has on the disaster artist. Mm-hmm. And that's the main problem here, because there is a gap between the two terms in this movie's title disaster and artist. And the film can't quite negotiate that really difficult space in between and land somewhere firm. It tries very hard at the beginning to make it clear it doesn't want to just make fun of him. The opening thing we get is rather awkward montage of celebrity testimonials. Yeah. about how great The Room is, unironically. I had actually completely forgotten about that. They're <laughs> trying to convince you that they genuinely love it. Yeah. And why I was think, that is there? it Adam Scott? Is yeah. he one? Mm-hmm. And J.J. J. Abrams even? Right. I'll tell you why it's there. It's because they want to be clear from the front. We're not yeah. making fun that of it. That they the revered this movie. They revered but... this movie. And mm-hmm. I agree there's an element of that here, but it just gets overwhelmed mm-hmm. by – all of these other things we're talking about. Now they also try to make up for it in the ending where this finale at the premiere of The Room is I didn't buy a second of it. Did not buy a second of it. So tonally all over Mm -hmm. the place where we're not sure how bad we're supposed to feel for Waiso, how much we're supposed to be laughing with the audience who's Mm -hmm. just uproar. And and it gets really personal. Like things start to break pretty early when it's the infamous sex scene and Waiso is forcing the camera to take take in his body mm-hmm. mostly, right? And the audience starts Groaning. making gross out noises. Yeah. That's, that's got to be crushing yes. for someone, right? Even if they're deluding themselves. Mm-hmm. And the movie hints at that and then tries to make this sudden turn mm-hmm. where, well, the Franco character tries to tell him that, but look, you've brought people uh-huh. together. And there's that goes back to this gap between yeah. – there's a gap between what Why so experienced which the movie tries to capture and what people are experiencing when they're at this movie mm-hmm. going to these cult midnight screenings and laughing
0: at. It. Yeah, I just don't believe the journey that any of the characters at the end of the film no. are on during or, that premiere.
1: Or what the movie's trying to sell right. us is that this is now something that everyone is enjoying mm-hmm. as as a it's to the joy thing you're talking mm-hmm. about. There's a different sort of joy that's coming from, and I'm not judging people who are going to these midnight screenings. No, not at all. I mean, I'd we're like gonna to go. we're gonna have fun making fun of bad movies mm-hmm. later in the show. So this isn't meant to like write all of that off. But the movie hasn't found out what it wants to say about that. And Mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't interrogate us, the audience, to ask, why are we laughing at the room? I mean, I would have liked to have been challenged. Yeah. Like, why why do I laugh at the room? And should I be laughing at the room? Should it become this cultural phenomenon it is? I don't have an answer to that. Right. The movie is is largely disinterested in that, I think, or uh, is made so uncomfortable that it tries to give us this happy Mm -hmm. take that isn't convincing at all.
0: Yeah. And I don't really disagree with you, obviously, in – What you're saying about the lack of conviction, though, that's something that's hard to express. It's hard to articulate. It's it's an intangible of sorts. I feel like it might be more just a reflection of some of the things you were saying in terms of them just not finding what they really want to say. They want to try to argue that this was a personal film, that this is a story of friendship. And it's also a story about betrayal that perhaps reflects who Tommy Wiseau really is and that this movie comes from a real place. There's something they're, they're trying to get at there a little bit, but it's just not enough. And I feel like between Franco and his other collaborators on the movie, Michael Weber wrote it along with Scott Neustadt, they just did not find a way to really dramatize. The making of the room and make it compelling or figure out, as you said, what they really wanted to say. And I think that another example I'd point to is we talk about kind of the agonizing process of making a movie. As I said, we see lots of bad things happen or things go on on the set that make it seem as if this wasn't a joyful time for everybody, but it doesn't get at anything larger. And in fact, at one point, it doesn't even really make sense within the larger context of the movie. There's a whole sequence based around the fact that Tommy has stopped paying for the air conditioning. Yeah. And so everyone is sweating too much and he won't buy water and he's always showing up late. Tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm overthinking this. But at that point in the film, we've had no reason to believe that Tommy's the type of character who's not willing to spend money <laughs> to make this movie work. Or would not be invested. Or wouldn't in be fully invested. Right. And then all of a sudden – he isn't. The right, movie just right. shows him as not being, yeah. and then it moves on from that. Which that's may, not, that's not a symptom well of happened. something else, something larger. Right. And, and you're right, maybe it did happen, but in dramatizing it, it feels like it comes out yes. of nowhere, and yes. it's not tied to who the person that Otherwise, the movie's shown us Tommy Wiseau to be. And you could
1: say the same of the turn it makes at the end is that perhaps that's where the real life Wiseau is at uh, with the room. And he has embraced it as this cult movie that people laugh at. Maybe he isn't. That's what the movie wants to sell us. And no matter
0: whether or not that's happened in real life, Mm -hmm. it isn't convincing here. No. And speaking of real life – I was thinking about you at the end of The Disaster Artist, Josh, because over the years we've seen, I don't know, maybe three or four, maybe five movies, pretty big movies that have decided during the credit sequence to show us the real life version of what the movie has been dramatizing or fictionalizing in some way. And in most cases, you seem to hate it. You seem to (laughs) hate when filmmakers rely on that and I know you agree with this too, but I think it is a matter of degree and how it's really approached and how it fits in or doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie. Sometimes I find it really effective. Sometimes I find it less so. Wow, did I hate it here. Oh, yeah. It really indicated to me, it goes back to that idea of maybe too much reverence. It's just split screen after split screen, five or six scenes of the real movie on the left, I think, and the disaster artist on the right meant to show us how faithfully... They recreate the mise-en-scene of the room, the blocking, and the performing so that it feels almost indistinguishable from each other. And I couldn't understand, honestly, what the goal of that was except to try to indicate to us again that we love this movie. The filmmakers really do love this movie, but I would have found it more interesting, actually, to see how they – how they veered from that. How they, how they worked with it. I know they have to make the room. I know they have to show some faithfulness to that. That's why people are going to the movie. And yet there was something, I suppose, lacking in imagination where it was just like, okay, at the end of the day, what they were really after that ending suggested to me is trying to recreate the room as meticulously as possible. That in and of itself isn't a compelling enough reason to see the disaster artist.
1: No, and that brings up a movie that tries to be a bad movie, The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver I don't know if you've ever heard of this. No. It was from, I don't know, let me, I'll look it up as I'm talking here, but it's basically trying to be one of these uh, sci-fi, terrible sci-fi movies like A Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's, from 2000 and I don't know how I even saw this thing. I must have been forced to review it, 2001. And it's amusing for a little while and then you're like, well, why are you trying to make a bad movie? So I think that's part of the problem. Um, as far as these end credits, you know, real life instances, generally my objection is they're in hagiographies, hey, right? Yeah. So it's like trying to hammer down how wonderful this person is. Here, it's the same problem as the whole movie has is, is what you've been saying. Why? What what are we getting out of this? It may be because they want to show how meticulous they are. It may be that they want to show reverence. But really all it does is, especially for people who haven't seen the room before, is show how ridiculous the room is. Mm-hmm. OK? So then you're kind of back to piling on. So it just it, – it doesn't have the a distinct sense of purpose that a project as complicated
0: as this needs. I think that's well said. If you see the disaster artist and agree or disagree with our thoughts, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Bad Movie Bible
1: author Rob Hill joins us next for the Film Spotting Top 5 Best Worst Movies. If he's got a Star Wars prequel on his list, Adam, I am going home. Stay with us.
0: Let's get a house, you and me and your 12 cats. We'll put mirrors on the ceiling. We'll have a bunk bed by the back. You'll line my mattress with nails. Something psycho came out of your mouth Your cabin eyes are gray Your scarlet lips have said A sales pitch full of circus In your mind Young know, We wanted to say a few thank yous here as we get to the people who were so kind and generous as to donate a few of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show. Listeners like Zeph Wagner in Portland. A new $5 a month subscriber, Josh, who says, I just restarted a $5 a month donation after a couple of years of lapsed membership. I mean, that's fine as long as he makes up for the interest. I'm sure we'll be good. I recently got a raise. Congratulations, Zeph. So I wanted to show you guys some love since I enjoy your show so much every week. I've been listening since episode one. And I'm amazed and pleased that you're still going after so many years. I can't believe you did a meetup in Portland and I had no idea it was happening. How did I miss this? Poor Zef. I do feel bad for you, Zeph. And I feel bad that I didn't get a chance to meet a listener who's been listening since episode one, no kidding. who's been supporting the show as long as you have. And it was rough. I think I mentioned this. I couldn't really talk about it on the show because even though my sister, God forbid, she'd actually listen to this podcast, nobody in my family does. But I thought, what if someone who knows her brings it up and the birthday surprise is ruined because my blabbermouth had to mention it here on the show and organize a meetup, So I had to wait until basically the night before and just try to get it out on social media. So Zeph, I don't know, maybe follow us at Film Spotting on Twitter or our Facebook page, or, you know, next time, everybody, I'll just try to provide a little more notice. A gold level donation now that comes to us from Larry, and I believe Larry is still in Austin, Texas. Have been listening to the podcast for the last nine years, Larry says. It
1: continues to be my favorite and it keeps getting better. Thanks, Adam and Josh, for keeping me entertained and engaged for so
0: many years well thank you larry now finally we have a new ten dollar a month donor that makes him a gold level donor and you've heard this name a little bit here recently on the show i think we should actually be paying him for his contributions at this point to the show especially the top five jeff milo in ferndale michigan and you know this is going to get a little bit gratuitous jeff is very kind and very effusive in his praise of the show but he's got a plea for our listeners josh and who are we to not share this plea with our audience and, and who are we to not, pat ourselves a little bit on our own backs. Thanks to my finally nearing the payoff of my student loans, I've got some more funds to foist your
1: way in tribute to my favorite podcast. What you two are able to do is remarkable because on any given week, 95% of your audience hasn't yet seen the film you're about to discuss. And so it's a bit precarious for some who'd like to get into a movie without getting too much told to them. And yet every time you're able to meticulously navigate your way around not spoiling anything, not giving away too much of the plot, and never, yet at least, really ruining the preceding viewing experience for the listener who's on their way to the art house or the cineplex that weekend it's just pure compelling discussion that illuminates more than it dissects, and it's damn fun to listen to take this as a compliment but I don't think of you two as critics. You're professional critics, yes, but I think what you do with film spotting defies misconceptions of what that ugly-sounding word can bring, such as the snobby stigma it carries. There's a care in how you craft your conversations because it's evident how much you care about film. I can't detect any elitist snobby criticism going on here. Even if it's a bad movie you're discussing, it feels like you're still celebrating cinema at the end of the day. <laughs> Appropriate I would say, for this show. <laughs> we might be testing that maybe this week, Jeff. He continues, so I'm up to $10 a month, and I want to say, If anyone out there started listening to this podcast a month ago, if this is your fourth consecutive week of streaming an episode, then you might consider a
0: donation because you might not know it yet, but you're already hooked, just as I was. Back in the Cinecast days, they called it Cinecrack, when you got those first few hits and you knew you were hooked and couldn't wait for the next show. And we love, of course, to hear those stories. And we really appreciate those kind words, Jeff, and appreciate your continued listening and support. There's not much we can probably say or need to say except – it's so rewarding, of course, to hear that, not just because it's praise, but I think it's fair to say in conversations we have between us, between Sam as a producer, and it goes back to the very beginning of this show, everything he articulated is What we are trying to do, whether we pull it off every week or not, is up for discussion, but that is what we're after.
1: Yeah, and the spoilers particularly, that's such a hard tightrope to walk and
0: everyone's, you know, their definition of that varies. Mm -hmm. So it's good to hear that for Jeff, at least we're doing it right. We do have one final donor, Alan in Mountain View, Arkansas, who says, time to pay the dealer for making those summer hours of mowing fun. Keep up the good work. We are happy to help Alan. Finally a no cost way you can help the show rate or review us on apple Podcasts. every five star rating every review really does help us reach new listeners we'd like to thank zach from iowa city every nickname gone dv dub remember why i like him and ginger mermaid for taking the time recently to post a review nothing nothing too outlandish this week josh ginger mermaid the sequel to the shape of water
1: mike i'm scared
0: it's getting dark well targo which way is out of here there is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. There is no way out of here. No way out? From 1966, a clip from Manos, The Hands of Fate, a movie that owes its fame to its sustained awfulness. Josh, do you want to do the honors and share what the film is about, according to Wikipedia? Yeah, this is, this is good stuff. It's about a family who gets
1: trapped inside a lodge run by a polygamous pagan cult. The film is described as infamous for its technical deficiencies, especially its significant editing and continuity flaws, its soundtrack and visuals not being synchronized, tedious pacing, abysmal acting, and several scenes that are seemingly inexplicable or disconnected from the overall plot, such
0: as a couple making out in a car or the master's wives breaking out in fights. I can't believe I haven't seen this movie yet. In 1993, Manos was the subject of a popular episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. It went on to become such a cold hit that when a 16 millimeter work print of it was discovered in 2011 a high quality blu-ray edition was produced so manos the hands of fate is bad famously bad but is it bad enough to earn an entry in the bad movie bible to find out the answer to that we turn to the author of the bad movie bible the ultimate modern guide to movies that are so bad they're good rob hill joining us from just outside london england rob thanks for coming on the show
2: Thanks for having me. Welcome,
0: Rob. Yeah, Manos, it it gets a mention in the book, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. It has to. (laughs) Is what put it over the top, Rob, I was just looking at some scenes from this, and the dedication in the costume design, I noticed when the master opens his robe, They're the giant painted hands inside the robe so that he's extra threatening. And I thought maybe that's what earned it a place in the book, a detail like that.
2: Well, I was just glad he wasn't wearing his home
0: clothes, which is often what happens in these movies. (laughs) Absolutely. And we heard there in the Wikipedia description some of the criteria – for what makes this movie so bad, the editing and the continuity flaws, the soundtrack and the visuals not being synchronized. We're going to get to the criteria you use to score some of these movies in the Bad Movie Bible and get to the top five. But I guess first, we got to do a little bit of setup here. I wonder where this project came from when did your appreciation for bad movies really begin well i guess
2: it goes back quite a long way as a as a teenager i think like a lot of people do i'd watch genre movies action movies horror movies with my friends and we sort of gradually noticed some of them were a lot worse than others and they could be funny in their own right as a result of how bad they were so it kind of grew from that and then a couple of years ago, I, I vaguely became aware that there are a lot of other people out there with the same sort of fascination. You tend to think you're the only one who knows these movies. And not being really one for social media, it had taken me a while to, to cotton on to the idea of there being others who knew this stuff. So I just kind of thought, there's a big enough phenomenon going on out there now. Maybe I should try and to describe it for ordinary you know, civilian cinema goers.
0: Yeah, and do you genuinely – I suppose I have to ask, do you genuinely – appreciate these films? Do you have a good time watching them? You said to me something over email about how often the mood you're in and the setting when you're watching these movies can have a big effect. And I've certainly said that I wish that I had watched The Room in one of those midnight movie settings as opposed to watching it on my couch alone. And I still enjoyed it for the various reasons one enjoys The Room, but it can be a very different experience. So what's your typical approach, I suppose, to these movies?
2: Well, I I think it is important to watch them with other people, other people who share the same sort of sense of humour. It took me a a little while to get my head around. When I was researching the book, I had to start obviously watching a lot of these things on my own, and that's not something I was used to. But it did, you know, I got into it quite quickly. And even on my own, I absolutely enjoy all these movies, particularly the ones that are in the book, and, you know, a few dozen others that are really top draw. But certainly being with with other people helps... um, if you've had a your a, a, a drink,
0: that might help too. There's no doubt about it. But on your own, that's something you, you really need to train for, I think. Yeah, we will share some of these numbers too as we get into your picks. But you established this set of criteria that you gave each film a rating on. Cheese, acting, excess, ineptitude, and then my favorite, what? <laughs> With a question mark. And if you've seen any of these movies that we're going to mention, including The Room, just might come up. You can understand why all of those apply. The one I want to ask you about, real quick though, is acting. All the other ones make sense to me, but what mm. what are you judging the acting on? Is that is that score of a nine or ten a reflection of just how terrible it is uniformly?
2: Basically, yeah. How funny it is. It, I mean, I, it, it was. It's kind of odd to single acting out, but it, it does end up being the the main draw in a bad movie. It, it, it's it's basically. A lot of it is down to how bad the acting is. It really is. And after I, mean, I talk about it a little bit in the introduction, it's kind of hard to define what good acting is and what bad acting is. But you do know it when you see it one way or another. <laughs> and if you've watched The Room recently, you know, that's something you are probably be acutely aware of right now. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think the quality that if I were to take on this project that you did, Rob, the quality I would really emphasize is the what? I think that's the one <laughs> and the the room is just packed with this stuff where If you're in a crowd, you may, for the first time, not laugh out loud at it, but just turn to each other and raise an eyebrow, yeah. and then turn back to the screen and be like, well, "Did we just see that?" That's uh, it. The, the The football play in the room <laughs> being one example. When I see some of these movies or stumble across them, that's what will get me to stick with them. If there's a curiosity, and I just ask myself, "What were they thinking?" and I have to see if they were thinking something similar in the next
0: five minutes, and yeah. before you know it, I've watched the whole thing. Right. So let's exactly let's see, Rob, how much of a what factor there is in your picks. We start with your number five best worst movie, which we should say we are giving it that title because that's a reference to the documentary that was made about the movie Troll 2, which many people consider to be one of the all time great terrible films and i have seen that documentary and recommend it if you do get a chance to get your hands on it so thought we would throw a little bit of a reference there i suppose and pay tribute to troll 2 with that title best worst movies your number five is the room there it is very fittingly at the moment so tell us about your experience with the room and why it's number five
2: well i came to it quite late um it's probably only uh maybe three years ago I hadn't really sort of got my head around the idea of there being good, bad movies that weren't eighties genre movies, basically. And you know, you, you see it, you, you, love it or you hate it, or you, you watch it again and you end up loving it. There's, there's nothing quite like it. I think it's its main appeal is less that it's so bad than it is that it's so weird. Tommy Wiseau is completely unique. There's nothing and no one like him in the world. And that, just comes through in every frame of the movie there's, there's it's just all him
0: yeah and you say in the book speaking of troll 2 don't make the mistake of thinking this is simply a modern day version of plan 9 or another troll 2 you say its appeal is more nuanced and its ambitions are more sophisticated so give us the the cliff's notes version of that your take on the mm-hmm. room how many times have you seen it how has your reaction to it evolved and why do you think it is more ambitious i suppose than some of these other Bad movies.
2: Well, as I said, I mean, most of these things are genre movies, and that means that someone is trying to rip off Star Wars or Terminator or Rambo or Die Hard, whatever the the latest trend is. And with the room, Tommy was trying to rip something off as well, but it was it was Tennessee Williams. He was, you know, he was trying to remake a streetcar named Desire, essentially, or or, or some sort of uh, melodramatic chamber piece like that, and. That makes it a lot more interesting, I think, because there's a lot of, he puts a lot of himself on the screen, he puts a lot of himself into the film, and the emotional truth with which he does that is unquestionable, whether or not he really succeeds in in Pulling it off and making you feel sympathy for him, making me making feel his vulnerability is is down to the individual viewer, I think. But for me, it, it kind of works. I, you know, I, I care about that character and not in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ironic
1: way, in a, in a genuine way. I came to the room even later than you did, Rob. I just watched it a few weeks ago in preparation for The Disaster Artist, and I had a similar reaction. First of all, it's all about Wiseau. You can find many ineptly made films – you've probably watched them, Rob, that are just as poor in terms of the acting or the blocking or the odd choices – but none of them have. Why so? And it is that commitment. It's that raw, genuine emotion, whether this is autobiographical or just a riff on Williams, he's absolutely putting all of himself on the screen. And that's where it does remind me of something like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, Plan 9 is a joyous expression on the screen. That's why I enjoy it. You can see Ed Wood Jr.'s enthusiasm for that sort of material. Here, I, I actually did. And maybe it's because I watched it by myself and I wasn't with a laughing crowd. But you do actually feel this guy's pain amidst
0: all of the silliness. So mm. so for me, I think that is what elevates the room. And you, Rob, had a chance to meet Wiseau you have an interview with him in the book. It was was it before or after a screening in Bristol, England? What was that like? How surreal was it to actually meet him and what did you glean from talking to him?
2: Yeah, it, it was surreal. That's definitely the word for it. it. What you see on screen is what you get in real life. There's no two ways about it. And um it it was difficult. You 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 do have to treat him with care because the the live fact the last time I saw him he just chased a guardian journalist out of the cinema. Because he didn't want to talk about whatever it was the journalist had brought up. So I, I went to him with a, a, an early stage idea for the book and was sort of highlighting that it was really about cult movies, not bad movies. And even that he got upset about because you know it's big Hollywood movie to him. It's not a cult movie. And he was a fascinating person to talk to. I have to say, he is very open once he starts to trust you. And I've seen him again since and given him a copy of the book. And it seemed to go well that lawyers have been stood down for now. So, you know, all (laughs) credit to him, really.
0: Yeah. And it goes without saying, or I think we should point out that he might appreciate the fact that on the cover of the book, there are stills from six movies. And by far the biggest is his face from that famous poster. So you know, unless he is going to eventually get the lawyers on you, he he probably has enough vanity to maybe appreciate that you put him on the cover. So you gave that movie, here were your scores, cheese seven, acting nine, excess five, ineptitude eight, and the what factor a 10, <laughs> which of course gives it an overall bad movie Bible rating of 10. I do want to say that the context in which I saw this movie, was here on the show. I had heard about it and its legacy a little bit. If you want to hear Josh's take on it in a little bit more detail, you talked about it, I think, last episode, right? Was that 658? Very briefly, but 658. You can find that at filmspotting.net. But it was discussed here on the show by your predecessor, Maddie, and me. It was a listener's choice. We actually did it as part of the show, but a listener wrote in, Leo McIntosh, you tell me if I'm butchering this location here, Rob Feltham, Middlesex, UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why Sound familiar? Close enough? <laughs> he, he, I have to give him credit because it turns out the previous movie we had done that a listener had required us to discuss was Sallow. Pasolini's Salo. (laughs) So Leo wrote in with three choices saying, basically, I thought I would provide a lighthearted list to nurse us back to sanity. And the choices he gave us were Leprechaun in the Hood, Troll 2, or The Room, which he said was Wiseau's masterpiece, a bizarre, disjointed, and distressing romance tale that will leave you questioning the mental state of all participants. So that was the context in which I saw The Room. And I will share that review. If you go to filmspotting.net and click on this episode, you can find a link to listen to that. I haven't had a chance to revisit it yet. So so I need to refresh my own memory on my overall take on The Room. My last thought here, or my last question for you about The Room, Rob, is has The Disaster Artist come out in the UK yet? And if so, have you seen it? What were your thoughts? I
2: don't think it's on general release yet, but I did, uh, I did manage to get to a preview and absolutely loved it. You can't complain, can you? I mean, James Franco has done such an amazing job, I think. It, 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 funny enough, when I last spoke to Tommy, he was complaining because he thought Johnny Depp should have played him because he looked so much like him, he felt. <laughs> but it, as great as Johnny Depp is, I can't imagine anyone doing a better job than Franco has. It's, it's extraordinary.
0: He's pretty dead on. He does not inhabit the role. There's no doubt about it. Okay, let's move on. Your number four best worst movie.
2: Uh, well, it is the season, Elves, <laughs> which is a 1989 horror movie stars Dan Haggerty, who I think is probably going to be best known to Americans as Grizzly Adams, who I I gather was quite a big personality. And it's about a Nazi elf uh, who is brought to life by anti-Christmas witchcraft and tries to launch the Fourth Reich by mating with a a sort of a disillusioned waitress. (laughs) And Dan Haggerty is the store Santa who, who has to save her. And savor he does. It's We don't know quite what happens to him in the end because uh, no one bothers to show or tell us. But it's... One of the best bad horror movies that you're ever likely to see. And given that it's Christmas, I think more people need to get out there and see it.
0: Now, this is a hard one to find, but you did put together a five-minute supercut that features most of the quote-unquote best dialogue. And we will link to that in our show notes as well over at filmspotting.net. Josh, did you get a chance to see this one? I mean, Grizzly Adams, you talk about acting. I'm going to call him Grizzly Adams because that's how I remember him growing up. He's, He's going for it. He's trying, he's, he's being very, very earnest. You okay? What? Where's that spark that you usually have?
2: You look like you're a little under the weather or something.
0: I didn't sleep all night.
2: Well, don't feel so bad. I didn't sleep all night either.
0: Things haven't been going exactly right.
2: Well, right back at you, sunshine. They haven't been going too good for me either, so don't feel bad.
0: You know, my cat got killed last night.
2: Well, I'm sorry about your
0: cat.
2: I really am. Forget it. No, I am. I mean it. I remember when I was a little kid, I had a dog named Pew Shooter, and I loved him so much. When he died, I
1: cried like a baby. So I know how you feel. That's a question I had about the acting issue here. Adam, was Grizzly Adams good? as grizzly adams cuz he's not here. So the question is, is, I think he was a little better. It's like playing to your competition, right? Is he playing down to the material here and he was Oscar worthy as grizzly adams cuz this is atrocious. You you just now there's the material to take into account. There are the odd situations he's placed in mm-hmm. um maybe maybe he just wasn't
0: given the right stuff to work with yeah, but i do I just get the sense that he's is trying so hard. he is like why oh, some committed. ways he's committed, he's committed. and committed. that that does matter so what do you think about uh grizzly adams performance rob
2: oh, well dan Haggerty is is a minor star of these movies actually he, he's like there's there's this whole family of actors who who became very, very well known for doing one particular thing. And nobody noticed that they couldn't act because what they were doing is just what they were anyway they you know they were just playing themselves so you've got people like Dan Haggerty and uh Hasselhoff is another one Eric Estrada. David Carradine. These people ground out a living throughout the 70s and 80s, appearing in some of the worst movies you've ever seen. And they're always hilarious. You can't beat them.
0: Yeah. So all of the TV stars from our childhood, basically, are the ones who went on to star in these movies. You did give the acting a 10. Cheese factor a 7. Excess only a 3. Ineptitude a 9. The what factor an 8, leaving you to an overall rating of a 9. But you've actually reconsidered this movie and you bumped it up to a 10. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's the time of year, isn't it? I revisited it a couple of weeks ago because I'd been wanting to watch it again because it had kind of gone up in my estimation even without rewatching it. And I, I don't know how what I was thinking when I gave it a nine. It's a, it's a classic.
0: Well, at least every December it gets a 10 and then you bump it down. For the rest <laughs> of the year. On your YouTube channel, you have some videos that you call masterclasses that take scenes from these movies that really get at some of the most terrible elements of these films. And often in these films, you're going to get examples of scenes where someone has to explain science. <laughs> Or there's what you call professor exploitation, extracting information. We get a lot of that all throughout this movie, Elves. I mean, really, you can't beat it for a lot of mumbo jumbo. And these movies are full of that stuff. There's no two ways about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time they just, you know, they have to
0: fill 10 minutes worth of time and they
2: haven't got any money. So they'll just put someone in a lab coat in front of the camera and and tell him to talk for a bit. And I think that's about as much planning as goes into it sometimes. I want to know the connection
1: between the elves and the Nazis. There are two schools of thought. What are they? One, the Nazis experimented with elves as assassination teams. Small, easily hidden, silent, vicious. They have magical powers. They can't be hurt or killed. They eat anything. They're a perfect soldier. The problem is, there's no such thing. What else is there? Tell me some more. Theory two. The elves were a genetic engineering experiment. I like this one better. It mixes science and the occult.
0: Okay, you're number three, which I have to say, I I know what's coming here. And having watched some scenes from it, I mean, The Room, I kind of knew what to expect, you know, and and it it lived up to my expectations. And even a movie like Elves, I've seen I've seen Troll 2 or enough parts of it to kind of know what to expect from a movie like Elves. I really had no idea what I was watching when I got to this one, Rob. (laughs) For your height only.
2: Uh, 1981 uh, Filipino action movie starring one of the biggest stars of, of Asian cinema at the time, Weng Weng, who just happens to be two feet nine inches tall. And he plays uh, a James Bond inspired character called 003 and a Half. And the plot basically follows the, the story of a scientist, and uh, he's developed an ultimate weapon, which is going to blow up the world or, or something, but never really told. And he's kidnapped by a mysterious crime lord. Um, he's going to hold the world to, have, to ransom, and only Wen Wen can save the day. So fortunately, he's equipped with all kinds of James Bond gadgets, uh, including a miniature jetpack. And they send him off to a, to this island, which is ruled over by Mr. Giant, who is also turns out to be a dwarf. And he saves the day, as, as you can imagine.
0: Yeah, it features some incredible accent work because, of course, it's been dubbed. And you compiled the video. Again, we will link to all these videos, if not on the episode page, on the top five page. And watching it, everybody in this movie is supposed to be Filipino. Just keep that in mind as you're listening to the variety of accents here. You dumb dodos, you blew another chance. Due to poor planning. You gotta take that ball into the end zone. Team play, that's what's missing. Boss, the trouble is that double O,
2: each move we make, that double O is it's already there. It's like he's in league with the devil. Right, big pals with Lucifer. I tell you boss, it's some kind of black magic. He's a one-man army. Button up your hoe.
0: Freaking guys all sound scared. You're members of the crime syndicate, please try to look the role. Am I mistaken, Rob, this one doesn't appear in the Bible, or did you get a chance to squeeze it in?
2: Oh, no, it's in there. It's it in there. It is in there. Yeah.
1: This one, I'm just going to say, left me speechless. When I started watching some of these scenes, the what factor was off the charts and I missed the jetpack detail. Is So is he – is Wang Wang using that when he inexplicably comes flying off the side of the frame at – a villain? Is, is that how he's getting that sort of air time and force?
0: Uh, no, on that occasion, he's actually been thrown. Ah, OK. See, that explains everything. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought was happening. It really looks like his secret weapon is just to have someone throw him on top of people. And it's its pretty magical. You actually, of course, it was in the book here as I'm now discovering it, because am I right that you actually used this in your pitch for the book to publishers?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I edited a, a little video just sort of trying to get across my love for Weng Weng in the hope
0: that anyone watching it would, would sort of catch the Weng Weng disease. <laughs> <laughs> so your overall bad movie Bible rating, 10, cheese, 8, acting, 7, excess, 5, ineptitude, 6, and the what factor, a solid 9. Body flinging, 11. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Okay. That brings us to your number two best worst movie
2: well this one is a little obscure it's called terror in beverly hills and i'm not sure it's actually been released on any home format since the vhs days but it's uh it's about a terrorist who kidnaps the president's daughter and frank stallone or rather the surrogate they got in to replace frank stallone when he walked because they weren't paying him um (sighs) has to has to somehow save her
0: yeah, Frank Stallone, there he is on the cover. And it is available on Amazon Prime. We found it and were able to watch a few scenes from it, Rob. And yeah, I know. It's not on Amazon Prime UK, unfortunately.
2: Oh, no. I, I, and it's the only, I, th- I believe the Amazon Prime US version is the only release where the audio isn't appalling quality. So I'm very jealous that you guys get to see
0: it properly. Well, th- this is why I have Amazon Prime, actually. For the <laughs> exactly, <story>. for <laughs> Terror in Beverly Hills. Now, am I crazy or based on the previous movies on your list is this one actually a little bit tame when it comes to the what factor i mean you gave it a nine and maybe that's because there's a whole lot of plot and absurdity that i didn't get to by just watching 10 minutes or so of the film but it really seemed like terrible don't get me wrong but terrible on a different level than some of these other films it just actually felt like it was a little more competent what am we're I saying crazy? is why are the nazi elves not at number two that's that's what i'm saying <laughs> this movie seems
1: more competent to me am i crazy it probably is it probably is but then there's some details
2: surrounding it which probably makes it a bit funnier particularly the the, the narrative gymnastics they go through in order to replace frank stallone who is introduced clearly as the hero who's going to save the day and then disappears for over an hour during which time some secondary cop figure is given all the all the heavy lifting to do. Wow. And I spoke to Frank Stallone about the making of it because it's it's become a minor legend in in this sort of in this scene. And I wanted to know if you know why he isn't in the whole movie. And he very cleverly sidestepped the direct questions, but then was happy to say things like, Well, my agent made sure that I was getting paid in cash up front every morning for every day's work I did because no one else was getting paid. And, you know, they got to the first day's location shooting and realized everyone had forgotten to bring a can of film. It, it sounds like a completely chaotic production, but mainly it's because it has Cameron Mitchell in it. And Cameron Mitchell is another one of these actors who made a name for themselves doing, I think, was it, was it Little House on the Prairie or one of those old Western series? Mm. And off the back of that, he's ended up with this career in, in bad movies. And he is... He is a force to reckon with. He's something else. He was constantly drunk, constantly angry, and that comes across in every scene that he's in. He's just marvelous in this. Now,
0: I want you to show me the exact location of that goddamn room. It's right there, sir. Exact?
1: Yes, sir. Did you check that out? Yes.
2: Now for the good news.
1: The Honorable President has declared we cannot fire. A single goddamn shot.
2: It's making it off an hard for us. Tell me about it. Will you close the f***ing doors? Tight! Assholes. Oh, 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 oh. Thank God I got a pension coming up.
0: Yeah, the Western TV series of The High Chaparral. From 67 That's to 71, Cameron Mitchell. The interview that you mentioned, of course, is in the book. And I do love that story because he says, basically, they get to the first location and they didn't bring the film, but he still got paid. He made sure that they paid him because they <laughs> wasted his time. So, hey, you know, he's, he's also a man of conviction. That conviction is to get paid. So that brings us to your number one all time, the absolute best worst movie. And after watching about 15 to 20 minutes of this, I'm sure you're right.
2: (laughs) There is no question. It is Double Down, Neil Breen's debut movie, the first of his four extraordinary masterpieces. I've seen this half a dozen times, and I, I can't make sense of the plot. I don't know what's going on most of the time, but it revolves around a character called Aaron Brand, Who Breen himself plays. He was formerly the world's best fighter pilot, but is now the world's best uh, assassin and computer hacker and secret agent, and quite a lot of other things. He's also got supernatural powers, which he doesn't really go into, which is which is a bit of a frustration. And for some reason, he's developed the world's most deadly chemical weapon. And the plot seems to revolve around him either preventing or perpetrating an attack on the Las Vegas Strip.
1: What do you have for me this time? Cryptography, hacking into a banking system, shutting down a power grid for a major city, cutting off the water system for half the country, hacking into the stock market, closing down a bank, fixing an election. It's all easy.
2: Network-centric warfare. It depends which scene you go by, really, whether he's the goodie or the baddie. <laughs> these things don't It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and there, there are these sort of strange, abstract, metaphysical elements as well, and, uh, philosophical ramblings which always end in him complaining about the government and big business.
0: Beyond that, it's all a bit vague, really. I love your quote in the book, the poll quote, Everything I need is always with me. Five laptops, six phones, and bioterror. <laughs> Six. He needs six phones. And really the beginning of this film, first of all, we get a line in his voiceover at one point where I swear I heard him say, I met the love of my life when I was seven, which I mean, I I know maybe what he's trying to say, but who would ever actually say that out loud and pick that age. and pick that age. And then this is this is it. The line that just that just takes them all. He's explaining how brilliant he is and what he's up to now, and he is wearing, we should say, a black tank top and jeans, and he's in the desert, out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by nobody and nothing, and he's got multiple laptops with him. The six phones aren't in view, at least at this point, and it's just awesome because he's just typing on a laptop and you hear him say, after all, I controlled access to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And right on cue, it cuts from him typing on a laptop to a satellite moving in space. Like, it's the best <laughs> it's the best use of kind of stock footage ever. And, and I believed it. I believed that he was controlling that satellite. You Josh. were there. You were in the moment.
1: From what I saw of this, it's a perfect bookend to the room, though, Rob. Mm. I'm going to say primarily because of what seems to be a preference to display his own flesh, perhaps unwisely, Uh, I I managed to to come across the pool scene, which is at once tragic and tragic, and I really wanted to watch the rest of this thing, but there seemed to be a level of misplaced vanity, supreme confidence... And these obsessions that you mentioned, too, these through lines that maybe would allow a little peek into the psyche of the guy behind this thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to have the room at five and this at one, which I should also point out, 2007, last week on our show, we were (laughs) talking about what a (laughs) a great year it was. We did the top five best movie years
0: and 07 was an Adam Pick. He didn't he did not mention this. Curiously, I did not add Double Down. Yeah, I mean, that that scene with his wife who was then assassinated in his arms, where they are naked in a pool. It seems as if he is actually standing naked in the pool. She's also naked, or at least wearing a G-string, turning in such a way that she's making sure the camera... Cannot see anything. Mm-hmm. She doesn't I, want it to see. It's awful. It's so uncomfortable, isn't it? The posture, yeah. The posture is so terrible. Everything about it's awful. And then I love how the red dot starts to appear, and we've seen this in so many movies where you know someone gets assassinated. Later, but, yeah. But even, of course, the the assassins incompetent because the red dots just on Neil Breen for like five minutes. It feels like, and then ends up on her, and of course takes her out, and then the scene ends. She no it dies. doesn't really end. Well, he grows on forever. There's a great animalistic <laughs> groan and then Rob what's going on? The end of the scene, the coda is her face down bleeding from the back, arms extended like an angel in the pool. Like the love of his life since he was 7, he just leaves her face down in the pool until the moment where he inexplicably joins her face down. See, There's a quick that. insert
1: shot mm. where the two of them are laying there bare-assed to the camera. <laughs> And I thought he—did he get shot too? But I think it was—I think it was a gesture of sympathetic grieving, because the next shot, he's okay again. I like how much you're thinking about this, Josh. Also, they couldn't afford a real laser dot. It's like the smallest red dot I've ever seen.
0: Are we doing this movie <laughs> justice here, Rob?
1: Oh, absolutely,
2: absolutely. It's funny what Josh says about it being a bookend for the room, because there uh, there are a lot of strong similarities here. Both of them are self financed you know movies made by people who want to be actors and so they they pay for their own movie and in those situations they always seem to write these characters for themselves who are, who are just ridiculous mary sue figures who are the best at everything and neil breen is the best example of that he, he is the most egotistical he, he's, he, a he's god. extraordinary he, <laughs> he, you know in, in the sequel to this movie he, he plays a god and then the, his most recent movie, he's a, he's a time-traveling god from another dimension, and he's also
0: part robot. It sounds like the villain to uh, Infinity War. Did he get Maybe cast so. in Avengers he Infinity War? He'd be more terrifying. Okay. I'm actually showing, Josh, the spread in your book from I Am Here Now 2009, the follow-up, where in one shot, we see him doing his best Hamlet yeah, impression. Yeah, the skull. Okay. Where he's got the skull, and he's wearing this weird white outfit. And uh, yeah, or is, yeah, this is the follow up, right? To double down. Yeah. Oh my yes. god. Yeah. The white flowing robe, it, sacred cow. Rubius it's a next lot
2: more.
0: It, oh, do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> this one, this one, I do want to share the score for I'm here now because excess only a two, but cheese ten, acting ten, ineptitude ten, bad movie Bible rating ten. Not bad. That's pretty remarkable. And double down, got only a four, only a four for cheese. Rob, well, it,
2: uh, you know that that's not it. That that's not its uh, its big gun, though. Really, it's 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 too unlike anything else to be that derivative of anything else and that cheesy. I
0: think. Gotcha. Acting ten, excess seven, ineptitude ten, what ten, final score ten. And I don't know how I missed this, Josh. There's the shot, the end of the pool shot in the well, bottom floating of together, the book,
1: right there, floating for you. together. Rob shares it with for their, all to see
0: their rear ends facing the sky for us all to enjoy. Wow. Well, as I said, we will link to plenty of links to all of these films, at least clips from some of these films, if you want to see the level of what and just ineptitude and insanity that we have been referencing here or just go to filmspotting.net slash top five lists four more so rob this was fun anything else you want to add about bad movies maybe what what you're working on now if you've got a follow-up of your own to this book will you be playing a god as you write that book (laughs) of course hopefully a robot god from another dimension
2: but um i'm mainly i'm I'm just i'm running the the website which goes alongside the book and um, i'm active on twitter at the moment and i'm out there promoting the book we'll give us that
0: website for our listeners who want to check out more
2: It is uh, badmoviebible.com. Perfect.
1: Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I've been given this great power, but I'm so alone without the girl I love. My girlfriend and I always wanted to have children. I love you. And now all of that's been taken away from me.
2: Confirmed.
1: Oh, jeez. He is planning something very big.
0: Bigger than 9-11 or any of the other larger catastrophes we caught in time after 9 and 11. Our thanks again Good to scene. Rob Hill. As I mentioned, we will list all of those titles and links to more information about them at our top five page. Just click on lists there over at filmspotting.net. We will also include a listener voicemail, Chris in Houston, with a great pick and great explanation behind his choice, John S. Rad's Dangerous Men. That is Our show this week, Josh, we'd love to hear your favorite, worst movies, or any other comments about the show. You can leave us a voicemail. Just email it to us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or call us 312-264-0744.
1: At filmspotting.net, you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you to name the best film of 2017, and we're giving you, I like this trifecta we've got here. Dunkirk, Get Out. Or Ladybird. Of course, there will be the category of other if Absolutely. you don't feel any of those are worthy. If you haven't already, please also check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We have The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find those in Apple Podcasts
0: or your preferred podcast app. Of course, at FilmSpotting.net, if you click on Shop, you can also get the latest Film Spotting merch. It's the holiday season. What better besides buying Josh's book to get someone? movie lover in your life than their very own film spotting t-shirt out in wide release this weekend just getting started i don't know josh it's directed by ron shelton morgan freeman tommy lee jones it has something to do with a retired fbi agent and a golf course rivalry and a mob hit
1: and ron shelton i'm just
0: looking last film bull durham 2003 hollywood homicide oh yeah it's been a bit it has been a while but bull durham is probably my favorite ron shelton movie and speaking of Kind of bad movies that I actually really love. White men can't jump. In limited release, Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman as Churchill. Really, all that needs to be said. Directed by Joe Wright. Wonder Wheel, the latest from Woody Allen. And The Shape of Water, highly recommended by both of us. The latest from Guillermo del Toro. Next week, The Last Jedi is out. And we will, hopefully, assuming all things go as planned with a screening, We will discuss that movie as well as Call Me By Your Name, starring Armie Hammer and Timothy Chalamet. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without
1: Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way, we can reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Ron Gallo. It comes from the album Heavy Meta. More information is at rongallomusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And
0: I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: Oh, hi, Otto.
0: Ahead on film spotting. How long did you practice that? Just in my head. Not even with the dog this week. (laughs) Thank God. He tortured her enough. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.